Now, let's uh, turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 17 and 18. Now, uh, I'm going to take a little different approach this morning to this material. It will be somewhat in the nature of a survey because of the uh, enormous amount of material that's involved. The passage is somewhat repetitive and doesn't bear uh, close... uh, Uh, verse-by-verse exposition, and so we'll handle it as a survey. This is a departure from our normal way of of attacking a passage. And secondly, I want to take uh, an interpretive course that may be brand new for you, and you're probably thinking, what's new? But uh, the approach that I want to take is to see the figure, the symbol that's represented here, described for us in chapter 17 and 18, in a new way. This is a part of my unending efforts to try to make the, or help you to see the relevance of the book of Revelation. The tendency on a part of those of us that are steeped in, a, in an evangelical tradition is to put Revelation way off out there somewhere that has application to the last seven years of human history, and it doesn't really relate to me. What I've tried to help you to see is that the forces that are at work at this period of history in this period of history, are at work now. They're just intensified then. And uh, Babylon, as we will see her in chapters 17 and 18, is just as real today as it will be then. All right. Now, let's look at chapter 17, and we'll read the first six verses. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here. I shall show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality." And upon her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. And perhaps you do as well. Now the question is, who is this woman? This, uh, this wicked woman who rides upon a scarlet beast. Well, interestingly enough, John never tells us, not in this passage nor in the rest of chapter 17 or 18. He leaves it up to us. Evidently, there are enough clues in the passage to enable us to determine who she is without any positive identification. Now, she's described here as a harlot, not as an adulteress. That's an important uh, distinction to make. She's never been the wife of the Lamb or the bride of the Lamb. She's not a part of the uh, family of God. She is a harlot. She's trying to seduce people away from God. She's pictured here as one of the beautiful people. Uh, She is uh, beautifully attired, adorned, as she's described here, with gold and precious stones and pearls and clothed in purple and in scarlet. And uh, she has in her hand a gold cup. Now, a gold cup invites you to drink because you know that its contents must be uh, something fit for a king. If someone hands you a styrofoam cup, you, could, you can guess that it's either bitter coffee or bad Kool-Aid or something in that, in that cup. But if they hand you a gold cup, 
you know that that's, uh, that's something good to drink. And she holds it out and entices people. Um, she reminds me of the Dewar's uh, white label ads that you see in Sports Illustrated and Time magazine of the uh, beautiful people. Uh, she is an attorney. She has a Doctor of Laws degree. Uh, she, her hobbies are reading existential poetry and skydiving. And uh, she drinks uh, Dewar's white label. Her clothes are, are styled by uh, Calvin Klein. And uh, she's one of the, the beautiful people. That's the way she's pictured here. She's a lovely young lady, and we mustn't miss that. Very attractive and seductive, sophisticated and glamorous. And uh, furthermore, she's described as Babylon. That's, that's the tip-off. That's the clue that we need. On her forehead, she has the name written, Babylon, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Well, in the Old Testament, Babylon is consistently used by the prophets as a symbol of the world. Not the world of things, of rocks and trees and birds and animals and human beings, but the world of ideas that's set against God. The idea that this world is all that there is. Happiness consists of having a lot of things, possessions, property, having the right home, the right car, dressing the proper way. That's what will make you happy and successful, and it will fulfill you and give you meaning in life. Probably the best uh, modern statement of it is, is Carl Sagan's uh, well-known comment, the cosmos is all there is. Nothing preceded it. Nothing will come after it. The cosmos is all that there is. Now, that's a blatant statement of materialism or worldliness. That's all it is. It's the idea that man can be man without God. What uh, is important in, in life is what you see and touch and taste and handle and and what men do. That's, that's the limit of our horizon. That's the world. Now, it's what John refers to as the world in his little epistle in 1 John 2. He says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And you say, oh, I know what that is. We're not supposed to love uh, our possessions. But he goes on in, in, in the verse to say, uh, let me quote the entire passage, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for love of the world and love of the Father are, uh, are contrary to one another. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now that's a scriptural definition of worldliness. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, by lust, John is not thinking of sexual lust. We use that term almost exclusively that way. He's talking about desires, drives, passions, a strong desire. And uh, the lust of the flesh, therefore, would be the normal desire that we have for creature comforts, to have uh, another bedroom uh, on our home because our home is not big enough yet, to have... Uh, a better bike to step up from a Honda 250 to a Kawasaki 500, uh, to have a better four-wheel vehicle, uh, better clothes, a better job, more money. Now, there's nothing wrong with things like that in themselves. It's this idea that things like that will make us happy and the inordinate desire for them, the passion for them, 
the drive that motivates them to get motivates us to get them at all costs. That's the lust of the flesh. And the lust of the eyes is simply the desire to have what we see. We open up a magazine and we see someone who is more beautiful than we are. And so we want to be even more beautiful. Or we see someone who has something that we don't have. And so we, we want it. And John tips us off to what is really at the bottom of all of this. It's pride, the pride of life. That's the big enemy. It's pride that makes the world so devilish because it was pride that made the devil the devil. It, it wasn't sexual immorality. It wasn't drunkenness that made the devil devilish. It was pride. He wanted to be like God. That's all. He didn't even want to be better than God. He just wanted to be like God. And that's what caused his fall. And it's that idea that permeates all the world. I am the center of the world. Everything ought to revolve around me. I have certain rights. People ought to indulge me. I need a nervous breakdown. I've worked hard for it. I deserve it. Or when we come home at night, we've worked hard all day. I have the right to collapse and ignore everyone around me. See, it's, that's pride. That's all it is. And as C.S. Lewis has pointed out, it's basically competitive. Pride doesn't drive us to be rich or to be powerful or to be clever. It drives us to be richer or more powerful or more clever than someone else. You see, we want to, to better them or best them. And uh, that's why pride is so competitive. Have you ever wondered why it upsets you when someone shows off? Well, it's because we think he thinks he's it, but he's not. I am. <laughs> that's what makes us mad. And we don't like that. And we don't like to be uh, ignored and uh, scorned. And at the bottom of it is, is pride, you see. Now, this is a world system which in the end of history will pervade widely the thinking of men. But it's with us today. And it is basically hostile to God. It may appear attractive. It may even appear religious. But it is hostile to God's plan to bring salvation to the world. And the reason is because behind the harlot is the dragon. That's the real enemy. It's Satan behind the scenes trying to thwart God's program to bring salvation to the world. And that's why we read in Revelation 17, 6, that this woman, the world, is drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. Satan hates God. He hates his Christ. He hates his people. And he'll do anything he can to thwart and frustrate God's effort to bring salvation to the world. And uh, he works through the world in opposition to those that know God. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. They may even kill you. Don't be surprised. Jesus said it would happen. In uh, John 15, Jesus said to the disciples, They hated me, they'll hate you. If they hate the master, what makes you think the servants will escape? That's the name of the game. Hostility toward God's plan to bring salvation to the world. It's interesting to look at Christians through the eyes of the world, and one of the best ways to do it is through the media. The media image of Christians is that they're a bunch of moral zealots 
marching around trampling on people's freedoms and their progressive lifestyles and pluralistic ways of living. Christians are rigid and stuffy and and uh, awkward and difficult to to live with, or some of us are. But but the image uh, uh, presents a much bigger picture than life. One of the most blatantly anti-Christian movies that I've seen in years is The Dragon Slayer. And that was put out by Walt Disney. And, uh, you know, you go to that because it's pure entertainment. But that is the most anti-Christian movie I've seen in recent years. You look at, at the way Christians are portrayed in that movie. They are fools, pagan fools, on the level with a poor, miserable old king who takes the credit for the death of, of the dragon at the end of the movie. And uh, the Christians are tampering with, with uh, magic in various ways and completely out of touch with reality, and they're presented as very, very foolish. Well, that's the way the world looks at us. We might as well accept the fact. And it will, in the end of history, as John points out, result in the death of many of God's people. But we need to take very seriously the fact that the world is in opposition to us because we represent God's plan to bring salvation to the world. Now, in the verses that follow, 7 to the end of the chapter, we're given some insight into the beast. And I'm not going to read this, this section. It's rather long. But um, John does, is, uh, the angel does explain to John what the beast represents, the beast on which the woman is seated. And uh, the beast is described in verse 8 as the one that you saw that was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and to go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth will wonder whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind that has wisdom. Here is the clue for those who are wise. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. So the identification here is clear. The beast is Rome, the Roman Empire. Many ancient uh, writers spoke of Rome as the city with, uh, of seven hills. So this is Rome, and it, the heads also have a, a dual symbolism. They are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. And then there is an eighth beast described in uh, eight uh, beast described in verse eleven. These were the five kings that preceded John, Augustus, and Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. One is that's Vespasian, the king who is on the throne at the time John was exiled at, uh, on Patmos. One is yet to come. That was Titus, who was only on the throne for a short period of time. And Domitian is the eighth who is yet to come. So he's giving a little sketch of history and including two kings yet in the future. And then in verse 12, he takes John, the interpreting angel, takes John on well into the future when he describes the ten horns as ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. This is this uh, coalition, this combine of ten nations that will make up the final form of the Roman Empire. As we've said a number of times, Rome did not die. It's, it has not, uh, it's still alive in the form of Western civilization. We here in the West are basically Roman in our educational systems, uh, in our political beliefs. We're Roman. And uh, in this final period of human history, Rome will be revived again in the form of Western civilization, Western Europe and the Western world. And uh, 
the woman is described as seated upon this beast. In other words, the power that drives the government during this final period of human history is worldliness, humanism, that what you see is what you get. And this is all there is. God is nowhere. Man can be man without God. You don't need him. You can be God. You can rule your own destiny. You can be the master of your own fate, the captain of your own soul. John says that will be the philosophy that runs the world in this final uh, era in human history. But my question is, does it not today? We, we place on our currency, in God we trust. But do we really? We trust in our money. We trust in our armament. We trust in our political leaders. God is really not on the scene as far as our national thinking is concerned. So this is a philosophy that's just as uh, real and prevalent today as it will be in these, last, in these last days. And then we're told in verses 16 that the horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. In other words, just before the Lord comes back, the governments of that day, the leaders, the men and those that are subject to them will repudiate this philosophy. They'll make her desolate, it says. They will burn her with fire. They'll realize that it just doesn't work. And that's the problem with materialism. As we've said a number of times, man cannot live without God. As Augustine put it, there is in every man a God-shaped vacuum. We can't live without God. That's why during the 60s, uh, when the world was thinking technology and, and uh, what man can do with his hands... Uh, so many students rejected that, and uh, they went off into uh, unbelief and eventually drifted into Eastern religions because they could not live without some spiritual underpinnings. We just can't operate without God somewhere in our life. And apparently this is what happens. They get so fed up with this way of life that they turn against it and, and repudiate it. But there's nothing left to fill the vacuum. There's nothing there after they've turned away from this uh, approach to life. And the result is the great disillusionment that's described in chapter 18. After these things, John says, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And she has become a dwelling place of demons and a haunt of every unclean spirit and a haunt of every unclean and hateful bird. Babylon is described here as an abandoned city, a ruin. And uh, the only, it's, it's only inhabitants are demons and, and wild animals and birds. It's been abandoned. It's left empty. And this is the way the world will look at the philosophy that's been driving them because that's what materialism always does to us. Oh, it always makes us feel empty. And uh, it takes uh, all meaning and substance out of life. It leads to what we described last week as existential death, boredom and restlessness and guilt, fear, anxiety, and uh, all of the psychological distress that goes along with a life that doesn't have any, any underpinnings. There's nothing under it. We feel insecure. We don't know what to do with ourselves. And so we seek uh, solace in, uh, in drugs or alcohol or free sex or whatever comes our way because there's nothing ultimately to give meaning 
to life. Now, he describes Babylon that way. It's like a great abandoned city, and uh, it's fallen. And because it's going to fall, in verse 4 of chapter 18, another voice cries from heaven, Come out of her, my people, that you may not participate in her sins and that you may not receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Verses 5 through 8 supply the reason why God's people should come out of her. Now, uh, this is a quotation from the book of Isaiah. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you and will be a father unto you, says the Lord Almighty. Now, uh, in its original setting, that prophecy referred, that uh, command, rather, was addressed to the exiles. They were off in Babylon. And Isaiah is calling them back to Judah, out of Babylon. Paul takes that same passage and he spiritualizes it in 2 Corinthians 7 to be a call out of the world. And he says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord. And he quotes this, this passage. In other words, he sees in 2 Corinthians that Babylon is the world. And the world is doomed to destruction. It has nothing in common with God. It doesn't, it's not, a, as the hymn puts it, a friend of grace to help us on to God. It doesn't do anything for anyone. It will ultimately destroy the quality of human life. So get out of it. Now, those of us that come out of an evangelical tradition normally think of separation or coming out in terms of spatial, physical separation. In other words, don't have anything to do with those pagans. Just reject them. But that's not what he's talking about at all. He's not talking about spatial separation. He's talking about moral separation. We cannot get away from the world. It encroaches on every side. And uh, these attempts to try to put finite limits on worldliness, to define worldliness as the dirty half dozen or the filthy five or whatever, and, and, and believe that that is worldliness, never work because worldliness encroaches on every side. It's an attitude. It's not people. It's an attitude. And our Lord was able to live right in the middle of the most worldly people imaginable. And yet, as Hebrews puts it, he was separate from sinners. Separation is not physical separation from sinners. It is moral separation. Jesus was the friend of sinners, and so should we be. But we ought to be unlike them, morally. Jesus said to his disciples, What do you do more than the Gentiles? He didn't say, what do you not do that's impressive to the Gentiles? It's, what do you do more? In other words, we ought to be more loving than the non-Christian world, more compassionate, more sensitive to people around us, more giving, more thoughtful, more courageous. We ought to have more integrity. We ought to be more truthful. And in that way, we demonstrate our separation. He's not calling for a retirement, a withdrawal but rather a renewal of spirit, a calling upon God to create in us the courage and the ability to be what God has called us to be right in the middle of the world. Now, there follows in verses 9 through the end of the chapter a description or a reaction to the judgment of Babylon, and it comes from a number of different quarters. First in verse 9, the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning. 
So the political leaders of John's day will discover that uh, materialism, materialism doesn't work and they'll repudiate it, but in the end they'll discover that's all they had. There isn't anything else. If you banish God from the universe and then you repudiate the world as the basis of life and meaning, you're left with nothing. And they weep over it. And the merchants of the earth, that is the captains of industry and commerce, and in verse 17, the shipmasters, those who make their uh, money in trade, and every passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance, were crying out as they saw the smoke of her, of her burning. And then in verse 21, a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer. And no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. And the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And what he's describing here is uh, the day that the music dies. There will be no sound of harp, there'll be no music, there'll be no art, there'll be no craft, no skill in one's hands, there'll be no light, no love. You see, all these things come from God. And God bestows them equally on Christian and non-Christian. That's what theologians call common grace. He shares it in common. We we have it in common. It doesn't make any difference whether we love God or not. He loves us. And the love that a mother has for her child and the gift of, of a child and the love that we have for our mates and the skill that we have in our hands and uh, the culture that we enjoy as a people. Those are all good things and they come from God. But in this final period of human history, when men repudiate uh, uh, the system that they've been operating upon for years, God will apparently remove all of these blessings from the face of the earth and man will be left with absolutely nothing. Now, we've never experienced anything like that because God's presence is felt here, now. And we know what it's like to have love and laughter and and joy. That all comes from God. But in this final period of time, it, it will be withdrawn. It's what Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians as being excluded from the power and the presence of God. We've never experienced that. Even as non-Christians, we've never experienced exclusion from the presence of God. We don't know what that's like. Well, that's hell. Because God is the, is the one who gives us everything worth that makes life worthwhile. That's why, in, in, in one sense, hell is ultimately a provision of God's love. He says to us, I, I want to be present in your life. I want to give you everything that you're looking for. I want to make your life meaningful and whole and purposeful. And we say, I don't want you. And then ultimately God will say, well, I love you. But I love you enough to let you have what you want. And if you don't want me, then I'll leave you alone. And that's hell. No light. No life. No laughter. No joy. 
Nothing. Emptiness. Meaninglessness. But you see, that's happening to some extent now. Today is simply a microcosm of what will happen then in that great dark day that is described here. If we insist upon living life as though only things matter, if the level, the extent of our horizon is what we see and touch and taste, and if life consists of abundance of things, as Jesus put it, then we're worldly, and God will give it to us. He'll let us have it, and life will become less and less meaningful. C.S. Lewis put it this way, If you have not chosen the kingdom of God, it will make in the end no difference what you have chosen instead. These are harsh words to take. Will it really make no difference whether it was women or patriotism, cocaine or art, whiskey or a seat in the cabinet, money or science? Well, surely no difference that really matters. We shall have missed the end for which we were formed and rejected the only thing that satisfies. Does it matter to a man dying in the desert by which choice of route he missed the only well? And perhaps that's where you find yourself this morning. You've been looking for something to satisfy you. And Jesus says, it's only those who hunger and thirst after righteousness that will be satisfied. Any other route leads to disillusionment and emptiness. It's inevitable. We always think that we're the exception. If we have just one thing more, we'll be satisfied. But that's a lie. We won't. There's a real note of pathos, I think, in verse 14. When the angel says to those that have been stripped bare and they're disillusioned by life around them, the fruit you long for has gone from you, and all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you, and men will no longer find them. That's what Paul describes as the fashion of this world that passes away, or as John puts it in 1 John 2. The world passes away, and it passes away in its desires. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, that's a question I have to put to myself and to you. Is that what we're doing? Are we seeking at all costs the kingdom of God and his righteousness? What do we hunger for? Is it the, the extension of his kingdom? Do we want to see people brought into a relationship with him and grow in that relationship? Or are we spending our lives, spinning our wheels, devoted to things that will never, ever satisfy us? There are no exceptions. Where are we spending our time? Now, this is a hard word. I find it hard. And I struggle like you do with materialism. Again, there's nothing wrong with having things. It's what has us. It's what possesses us that matters. Do we love our things? And I struggle with this. I like things. I like pretty things. I like a lot of pretty things. We're all like that. And somehow we think that just a little bit more will satisfy us. But it won't. It won't. And I find it hard to repudiate that idea, take my roots out of what seems to be tangible and real and put them down in the Lord who sometimes does not seem very real at all. But that is reality. And that's where meaning and substance and Joy, life is found. And as I've said again and again, it ultimately depends upon Him. I need to make the choices that uh, Scripture directs me to make. 
I need to choose righteousness. I need to struggle against the habits that hold me. I need to resist my tendency to, to sin in certain areas where I failed over and over again. But ultimately, it all depends upon the Lord. I want to get a quote. This is a quote from Annie Johnson Flint, and it summarizes well where our, where our resources are found. She writes, When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love knows no limit. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of His infinite riches in Jesus, He giveth and giveth and giveth again. What is it that we hunger for? He wants to give it. He's the giver of every good and perfect gift. And what fools we are to set that aside and believe that somehow what we're going to do with our hands or what someone else will do with his hands is a match for what God has already done for us. It's available to us. Just receive it. Let's stand together. Father, we know by looking back on our life how drab life is when we ignore you or when we push you to some small part of our life and refuse to let you lord it over us as you so lovingly do. And it is our desire, Father, to seek you. We know the pride in our heart that's, uh, that's exposed in various ways. And we know that only you can deal with, with the inner man. We've tried to change the outer man, and it doesn't work. We need you at work in us to will and to do of your good pleasure. And so we entrust ourselves to you this week. Deliver us from the delusion that one thing more will satisfy. And help us with Paul to seek the one thing that does satisfy. And that is the face of our Lord Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen.